Professor Paolo Urio from the University of Geneva. He's from the Department of Political Science and International Relations, and he's the author of a fantastic new book, America and the China Threat. Professor, welcome uh, to the mother of all talk shows. Now, um, the, the very title of your book uh, speaks volumes itself, doesn't it? The China Threat. Why is China a threat? The China threat, well, it's the point of view of the United States. It uh, started several years ago, but it acquired momentum towards the end of the last century and the beginning of this century. Why so? Um, Why so, though? Sorry? Why so? Oh. Well, simply because China, since uh, at least the end of the 1970s, started to develop its economy by introducing into its planned economy something different, that is some market mechanisms. In the West, we say market economy, some even say capitalism, state capitalism. For me, it's a contradiction in terms. This cannot be state capitalism. State capitalism, as we know it in the West, it's when the economy is possessed, or at least the more important part of the economy is possessed by private people or by private organization. And the state is pushed aside. In China, this this not happen. They kept the planning, but they transformed it into a more subtle planning. They give directive, they give incentives to the enterprises, and then they leave the enterprises, the private one, to do their job, to improve their uh, management, to improve their skills, to improve their projection to the rest of the economy, to the rest of the world, and this started after China was admitted to the WTO at the end in December 2001. And from that, the development has been very, very quick, very impressive, not only in the traditional domains where China was producing toys, uh, books, uh, shoes, and so on, but it started to produce something more, more technical, more technical. That is today, China has done important uh, improvements in technology, uh, for example, intelligence, arti uh, artificial intelligence, and other domains where about 10 years ago, nobody would have thought that China would have been able to do something new by herself. Because until then we said, okay, China, they can imitate what we, we are doing, but they are not able to go above that level. They did it, they did it. And it started little, little, little by little. Um, explaining that, I think we have to consider 
the teaching of the French historian of the economy, Fernand Brodel, who said that you must look at a long time. Things are going underneath in the long time. And if you add to this the point of view of the Chinese uh, historian and philosopher, Wang Hui, he says in the long time, there are these silent transformations. They are silent. You don't hear them. You don't even see them. Silent and invisible. And then suddenly, one day, they pop up into the news. And everybody is surprised. How come? Oh, the Chinese are able to do that? The Chinese are building a speed, high-speed train? The Chinese, and so on and so on. They're improving their, their military also, thanks in part to the Russian. We, we know that. But we have now a situation where China really, it's big, not only in terms of population, which it has always been big country, even in the 19th century, when small, in quotes, England defeated big China. China didn't have the quality to put on top of the number of people they had on the vast territory they had. Now they've done both. They are numerous. There are more than 1,430 million people. And they have put on top of that the quality of their economy, the quality of their science, of their technology, and so on. And starting maybe with Xi Jinping, it, at the beginning of his first term in uh, uh, 2013, they're starting to go abroad. Go abroad. Where? But where the United States were there. And then, big surprise, big surprise, and big threat, and big threat. Do you China think, is there. Do you think that, that uh, in a way, is the, is the, is the crucial factor, uh, that it was bad enough China moving from making uh, plastic toys? By the way, Professor, I'm so old, I remember when the same allegation used to be made about Japan. Japan yeah. just copied our things. They exactly. couldn't make anything themselves. Exactly. Uh, now it's, uh, we've moved from uh, Japan to China. Then China was routinely, uh, uh, if you like, disrespected in that way. But now China quite self-evidently with its mobile telephones and its electric trains and its rockets to the dark side of the moon and so on is very obviously leaping ahead. Um, but perhaps the Rubicon was crossed when they moved abroad, when yeah. they started to plant yeah. their uh, Belt and Road Initiative, for example, yeah. Uh, yeah. right across the globe. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, there is some reason why they went abroad. Uh, for... Well, since the 19th century, China has been confronted by the foreign policy of European power first, Great Britain, France, and then United States. All these three countries had a global foreign policy, global foreign policy. Uh, we used to say that uh, on these empires, the sun never sets never said. So they are all over the world. So in order to be able to face the new empire, the American empire, it was inevitable that China would go abroad. 
This is certain. It started little by little. We didn't see it again, the silent transformation, but it was prepared for a long time. Uh, Xi Jinping made the first uh, speech about the Belt and Road Initiative at the beginning of its first term, 2013. But he couldn't have imagined that by himself just in a couple of months. So it was there, little by little, in the long time, by slowly, silently improving the capacity of the economy and of the science and technology of China. So it went, China went abroad out of necessity. It was not uh, a project uh, inside its genius. It was not. not. And um, if I can compare the ideology of the United States and the ideology of, France, of, of, of China and the projection of that ideology into foreign policy, we can see the big difference. It's evident. Uh, may I go back to one of the first very famous president of the United States, Jefferson. Jefferson wrote in 801, that is only 25 years after the Declaration of Independence and 22 years before the proclamation of the Monroe Doctrine, so right at the beginning, a letter in which you can find a sentence which, in my opinion, is the blueprint of foreign policy of the United States for the years to come. In that very short sentence, it says a lot of things. It is written with no pathos, no emotion. It's a matter of fact. A matter of fact, it's like, how could I say, a registered letter sent by postman Jefferson to the American establishment telling you are going to do that in the future. In that letter, in that sentence, um, Jefferson puts together the development of the United States, the consequent development of the national interest, and the expansion abroad of the United States. He says, we are going to expand. This is the key word. We are going to expand. But where? And he says, we will cover the whole of the northern continent. And why not also the southern continent? In the north, it became big mistakes because there was Canada. In spite of two invasions, Canada kept its independence. And in that world, people, he says, will speak the same language, will be governed under similar forms and by similar laws. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's the foreign policy of the United States at the beginning of the uh, 19th century. Well, expansion, uh... expansion, excuse me, expansion at the beginning of the and now. We are discussing what we are discussing now, the expansion of NATO, that is the US, up to the border of Russia, even under the windows of the Kremlin. So, I mean, it's, it's something that was implemented year after year, decade after, de after decade. Taking China now, the blueprint of China foreign policy is very different. It's uh, uh, 
a sentence, or more than a sentence, a program defined by Chuan Lai in 1963. That is a few years after the first big mistake made by Mao, that is the great leap forward, which started in 58 and lasted a few years. And three years before the second big mistake made by Mao, the great cultural revolution, we started in 66. So now in 63. In 63, Chuan Lai certainly, with the approval of Mao, defined the China strategy for becoming again a great power capable of confronting other great powers. And it is the theory of the four modernization. China, in order to avoid the humiliations of the 19th century, must become strong again, must improve its agriculture, must improve its economy, must improve science and technology, and must improve defense. You see, there is nothing, there is no projection abroad. We have to define ourselves. Then, of course, beginning of this century, China is confronting with the United States, and the United States has a global foreign policy. They're everywhere. They're even on the border of China with several hundred military bases. So China has to go abroad. It was out of, as I said before, out of necessity. Fascinating. The book is wonderful, Professor. It's called America and the China Threat. I commend it to absolutely everyone. Thank you for joining us on the Thank mother you, of Thank all you. talk shows.